Hi Ventures, welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm your host Freddie Cocker and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone but especially men and boys can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations. Each pod I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. In today's episode, I'm checking in with author, journalist and photographer, Laura Dodsworth. I came across Laura through her brilliant new book, Free Your Mind, The New World of Manipulation and How to Resist It. She is also the author of several other books, including A State of Fear, How the UK Government Weaponized Fear During the COVID-19 Pandemic, Bare Reality, 100 Women, Their Breasts, Their Stories, Manhood, The Bare Reality and Womanhood, The Bare Reality. Now, we won't have time to do a deep dive into every single one of these books, but we will do a deep dive into Free Your Mind through a mental health lens and hopefully touch on the other books as well if we have time. We also discussed Laura's wider journey in broadcasting, media commentary and photography, as well as a very ahead of its time Channel 4 documentary called 100 Vaginas. For Laura's mental health, we discuss how the concept of trauma has informed all of her work as a professional her father's struggle with sex addiction and what effect her parents' divorce had on her. We finish by discussing the mental health impact of the menopause on her as a woman over the age of 50, I won't specify her age, the stigma around it for women and the taboo about it in the wider mental health conversation. So this is how my conversation with Laura Dodsworth went. Laura, welcome to the Just Checking Pod. Thank you very much for letting me check in with you. I came across your brilliant book through fellow commentator Emma Webb, who co-signed it, shall we say, and I knew I had to get you on to talk all about it. How are you, first of all, and how was the reaction to the book been? Because you've been a very busy bee with it. I think the reaction to Free Your Mind has been very good. It's been very uncontroversial, which is a very pleasant change for me, actually, (laughs) (laughs) compared to my other books. It went down well. I mean, it went straight in as a Sunday Times bestseller, which is lovely. That's a real sweet spot. That's every author's dream. It was on the list for a couple of weeks. So that was nice. And it's had good reviews. It came out in July and we're now January. So for me, that already feels like quite a long time ago. I've started researching my next book. So this feels quite backward looking now. It's quite nice. It's nice to revisit it but yeah I now feel like I'm long past that launch period although the paperback comes out in February so I guess there's going to be a sort of a it's going to feel fresh again soon. Mm. You have achieved so much in your career and done so much brilliant works we won't be able to talk about absolutely everything because I know you've got a hard stop in about an hour or so so without further delay are you ready to start the show and talk all about it? I so am thank you for having me. We're going to start your pop, Laura, by talking about your professional journey as you've dabbled and excelled in several different careers and are still balancing those to this day. Firstly, tell me how and why you got into this and the journey to where you are today from, say, early career in publishing right through to where you are now. You're so kind saying I'm excelling. I have no idea what I'm doing. I don't think there's ever been any, well, no, I don't think, I know there hasn't been any conscious planning in my career. I feel like I lurch actually from one project to another, but if we're being really kind, we could say that I've evolved 
I think my best work has come from a need for catharsis. It's come from internal reasons. And therefore, it changes me because I'm doing something that comes from a need to create change in myself. It does change me and I can't always predict what will come next. When I got my first job after university, I went into publishing and that was because I had an idea I wanted to be a writer, but I didn't know how or what. I guess I didn't have anything to say because I ended up in marketing and publishing. And when I was in my late 20s, the man who became my husband got an offer to move to Paris with his work. And that meant me giving up my job, which felt like a bit of a crazy thing to do. I was doing very well at the time in senior marketing in Disney. I was the European marketing manager for the websites. I'd gone a long way from my initial hopes of being a writer. So I decided to retrain as a journalist, do a distance learning course in Paris. So that's when I did my journalism course. What a place to retrain, eh? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't speak French, though, so it was tricky. And I enjoyed it and I passed it, but it didn't light me up. And I did a photography course. It was just for fun because I had all this time on my hands and that lit me up. And so I started assisting photographers and I became a photographer. And I made a lot of my bread and butter from weddings and portraits. I was a pretty good wedding photographer, actually. But then I started taking photographs for more internally driven artistic reasons. I created a project about marriage. I was photographing women in their wedding dresses that they'd worn. It could be weeks or many years or decades earlier. And it was a really interesting project. I was obviously exploring my own issues about Mm. identity and marriage. Fairy tales end with a, a wedding day quite often, don't they? And you wear this big romantic dress. But of course, it's the beginning of another story, which is the story of a marriage. So I'd photograph women in their dresses next to their piles of washing or you were ahead of your time. You, you, you were something. doing say yes to the dress before say yes to the dress. <laughs> so I'm always I'm always way too ahead of the curve. Um, I tell you what, you make more money if you're right on that crest of the curve. I'm always before it. So that was fun. But I thought, why am I not interviewing them? Why am I not interviewing them? Because they were saying these really interesting things about their wedding and marriage and their husbands. And so that's what really started where I feel my current career trajectory began. I started a project called Bear Reality, 100 Women, Their Breasts, Their Stories. And anyone who's listening to this, because I wrote a book called Free Your Mind, The New World of Manipulation, How to Resist It, is thinking, what? She started with breasts. Yes, I went from breasts to brains. But that was about women's sexed experience of life. I was asking about what it means to be a woman, sort of told through the story of their breasts, which, of course, are uniquely female biological language there which may offend some people but I'll be cancelled already Laura don't worry about that well (laughs) and the thing is having then gone on to create three books about breasts penises and vulvas I've done a 180 on gender and so I'm right off that fence now and those books are very much about biological sex experience the world although I had trans people in all of them so after those, and I went on to make a documentary of Channel 4 called 100 Vaginas. Very ahead of its time again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, they, I don't think they expected it to do as well as it did, but it's been shown on public broadcasters all around the world. It was a very sensitive but edgy set of interviews and portraits into how women feel about their vulvas, which is probably the body part that has the most power pride shame fear pleasure and everything connected to it after that i thought i would continue down quite a visual road directed a little film for the guardian i think i thought that was the direction i was going in i was actually about to start a really cool project in a high security prison with men who would formerly been considered psychopaths a photography and interview project and then covid started 
and we were locked down. And so everything I wanted to do was just knocked off the table. And COVID was a real epiphany for me. I don't think there's been a period of time in our life or many periods of time which has shown just how much people's behaviour can be changed from the top down by a government. These are lessons we should know from psychology experience like Milgram, Zimbardo, Ash, that you know, we should know from examples like communist countries or Nazi Germany, you know, masses of people can be made to conform and obey commands. But at the time, people thought it was all rational. But, you know, if you look back, you know, parents were denied the care they need for disabled children. People couldn't go to funerals. Fathers couldn't be at the births of their babies. People cut holes in masks to play woodwind instruments. People stood on dots in supermarkets and pretended that little cloth masks were to protect them from an airborne virus. You know, the world went mad. And so I wrote about that. I wrote about how the government used fear and psychology and propaganda and nudging to control a population, even if it was supposedly in our best interests to make us follow the rules. And that was called a state of fear. That was a bit of a sleeper hit. And that takes me to where I am now. I Mm. wanted to write a book to help people resist manipulation because I think we're in quite a unique time. Manipulation, persuasion is nothing new. But right now, and you know, we can get into it. I wrote, I've been answering this question a long time. Right now, we're in a very specific confluence of circumstances. And if you cannot think freely, you simply are not free. If you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs that puts basic physical needs at the bottom and self-actualization at the top, I completely disagree with that. I think if you don't know how to recognize and resist manipulation, you might not have the rest of it. Free thinking is the bottom of Maslow's pyramid hierarchy of needs. And that's what this book is about. It's to give people sovereignty over their own minds. And some people might think this sounds a bit paranoid. They may think, I don't know what she's talking about. The government didn't frighten people in COVID. I'm not manipulated. I'm okay. But, you know, some of the smartest people can be brainwashed. And if you think you're immune to nudging and propaganda, you Mm. are most definitely at risk. So... There will always be manipulation. Some of it you could describe as good, teaching people to read or putting prisoners, you know, away and rehabilitating them, punishing them could be described as forms of manipulation that I don't think anybody would argue with. But it's about sovereignty of your mind. It's about privacy. As soon as somebody thinks they have the right to change your mind or to influence your mind without you knowing, they've broken in. And this book is about giving you the passwords on the electronic gates and allowing you to fortify your mind. Because the most extreme way of looking at this is that your brain is a battlefield and everybody wants a piece of the action. You make a really interesting point, which I imagine has been a theme of a lot of your other media interviews, which is who is fact-checking the fact-checkers. So in your opinion, can true impartiality or objectivity ever be reached? And if so, how would you say media outlets need to go about it? I think we should always be attempting to fact check and uncover truth as best as possible. The media fails on a constant basis. There are so many recent examples. I can't believe anyone even trusts the media anymore. So let me start by giving you a few examples of recent terrible mistakes that were made in case people don't believe this is true discuss the idea of who's fact-checking the fact-checkers and what we do about it. So recent mistakes. Most recently, the biggest example I can think of is when mainstream media around the world, including our own national broadcaster, reported that Israel bombed a hospital in Gaza, killing hundreds of people. The Al-Aqsa hospital, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Israel didn't bomb the hospital. It was a rocket that Gaza fired 
because they do that frequently, they fire missiles from close to hospital schools, civilian areas. And there were intelligence experts saying, well, hang on, how can anyone know this already? Slow down. But the media did not do their due diligence. They reported facts according to a a terrorist organisation instantly, which reflects their own ideological and political bias. Another recent example going back a little bit further would be the Wuhan lab leak. Now, senior public health experts and scientists around the world were privately speculating, we now know from emails that have been released, that COVID was 50-50, according to some, or most likely released from a lab. Whether deliberately engineers a bioweapon or not is another matter, but escaped from a lab. Yeah, Matt Ridley wrote a really brilliant book about that, didn't he? Along with Matt Ridley, yes. I, I can't remember the name of, unfortunately, but yeah, it was a female author that he co-authored it with. Alina Chan, I think, Alina and Chan, Matt Ridley. You. Yeah, yes, and, yeah. and he's been talking, they've both been talking about this for a long time. But the thing is, now these emails have been released, we know that's what public health scientists thought. And yet you also see in emails how they intended to cover up this theory because they felt it would be bad for international harmony and science. Now, numerous fact-checkers and media said that the lab leak theory was a conspiracy theory. So they said this while they could have no evidence who had not, the World Health Organization had not conducted an investigation, still no one has been into those labs to conduct a proper investigation apart from the Chinese. And yet the media reported it as a conspiracy theory. And now intelligence experts and public health scientists say that is likely the most plausible theory for the origins of COVID-19. Going back a little bit further, there was the Hunter Biden laptop, which we were told was a conspiracy theory and was squashed by media and social media but was also true so over and over you'll find different sorts of areas the media makes mistakes so we do need to be careful about fact checking but when you look at fact checkers you also need to look at who funds them that's one issue and the other is that facts evolve and change there's something called the half-life of facts in psychology it's about seven years by which something that you think is a fact due to additional knowledge or new scientific understanding is no longer thought of as a fact So that's one issue. The other is that nobody is politically and ideologically neutral. I'm not. Patrick, my co-author, is not. Our book is not neutral. It is impossible. No human being can be completely neutral. You should always retain some level of scepticism. So what fact checkers do is seek to tell you which information is correct or not. They become gatekeepers to truth. It's a new priest cast of truth. And I don't think that's the right way to go about it. I think the best thing instead is to teach people how to think for themselves, how to assess truth, how to be resistant to manipulation, how to recognise propaganda, because then they're better equipped to make up their own minds. This is about whether you trust people and believe in people or not. This whole new legion of fact checkers, this new industry of censorship and surveillance and truth checking, which has built up, I think is based on a fundamental mistrust of the human brain. And also, it's a never-ending industry, which would suit it very well, wouldn't it? If you have funding and a job, it would suit you very well that your job goes on forever playing whack-a-mole with facts and the truth. So there are thousands of books out there that teach you how to manipulate, nudge, use propaganda and advertise. And I really think Free Your Mind is the first quite complete book that teaches you how to resist it's the first defence against the dark arts. I was, gonna, I was literally about to say that as you said that. <laughs> yeah, and that is that is a more helpful approach, I think. You know, teach a man to fish, basically. Teach a man to fish. Learn how to think for yourself rather than rely on fact checkers who make mistakes. One thing I found really interesting is something you described called the Werther effect. And I found this phenomenon which was characterised in depth in another brilliant book I read called Strange Contagion. Can you tell the listeners what this concept is and why it's actually quite dangerous, especially for very impressionable or malleable young people? Well, 
The weather effect is, I'm not surprised you're interested, of course, because your podcast is about mental health. And this relates to what's been noticed about mental health when things are reported in the press. So, for instance, if a suicide is reported in the press, you can get copycat suicides. Clusters as well, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and we saw this before with um, bulimia. Eating disorders, mm. it seems, have always existed in one form or another, but bulimia didn't really exist as a, a social phenomenon until it was reported. And so there is a danger that people will copy things that they read about. And you can see how it works. You know, if somebody has a suicide ideation, they might actually be Googling for how to do it. And they find a story and they think, okay, that's how to do it. Or somebody reads about something that happened in their area. And, you know, for whatever reason, they themselves are vulnerable. They can decide to mimic that person they know whose circumstances they may relate to. So that's the worth of it. In one part of the book, you also quote a study which found that people who experienced traumatic events are less likely to be manipulated. So why is that, given that we know that a lot of people, but not all people, who end up in, say, cults, do come from traumatic backgrounds or have been victims of abuse themselves? Do we say that in the book? Okay, I'm going <laughs> to... I'm struggling to remember that bit. If that's in the book, it will be referenced by a study or somebody we've interviewed, and there may be some truth to that. But there's also a way in which trauma makes you vulnerable to manipulation. You know, you just brought up the idea of cults. And in a sense, trauma on a small scale or a massive scale, you know, whether it's the micro or the macro, can make you more susceptible to manipulation. This is something that everybody who goes to AA would know, or Narcotics Anonymous, because you have to watch out for the blip. They're told to halt hunger, anger, loneliness, tiredness, or anger can also be anxiety. Mm -hmm. If you're feeling physically susceptible or emotionally or psychologically low, you are more likely to then make an impulse purchase in a shop or to fall off the wagon if you have an addiction or to join that cult or to be swayed by propaganda. It also works on a bigger level. You know, maybe it's the divorcee who joins the pyramid selling scheme or in the case of a country that's just suffered a pandemic and lockdowns, which I don't think deliberately but coincidentally mimic some of the enhanced interrogation techniques can make you more likely to sign up for vaccine passports and digital ID. So trauma at different scales can make us more likely to fall into cultish Mm. thinking or off the wagon. You strengthen this by quoting a Stuff article where Jehovah's Witnesses admitted that they view the recently bereaved as, quote, ripe fruit for, quote, grief targeting. How did you feel when you wrote that or found that out? Well, it's repugnant. It's Mm. absolutely repugnant. And this is the whole reason for the book. I find deliberate and excessive manipulation absolutely repugnant. And sadly, it's naive that people think it doesn't happen. Now, look, when it's a brand trying to make you buy more of brand A over brand B, I don't really care that much. We all know that happens, okay? But it's when religions and governments do it that I think it's particularly egregious. You know, Coca-Cola don't have a fact-checking department, not so far as I know anyway. And Sainsbury's aren't uh, spying on us and, and running social media campaigns sneakily. It's when governments, their intelligence services and religions and cults try to exploit people because they all think they're doing it. They all think they're doing it for your own good. And of course, there's not just something about it which is repugnant on a personal level. It actually becomes dangerous. You know, this COVID epiphany I'm talking about that Patrick also shared is 
is a reason behind the book. You know, we kept referring deliberately back to the writers who wrote after the First and Second World War, because that mass conformity and manipulation that was induced in people that led to the Holocaust and the Second World War is a terrifying period in history. This is why we say never again. But there's a great quote. Let me see if I can just quickly find it in the book from Jung. Here we go. No, I can't find it. Sorry, I'm okay, going. I'm going. To, I'm going to waste <laughs> your. I'm going to waste your time with the podcast. But what he basically said is, I'm going to paraphrase. The only protection against brainwashing is to know that you are as susceptible to the next person. Be humble as well about it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, humility is very important. I mean, I came away from writing the book very much more humble than I was. I've got another quote to hand here. He said this in 1956, you know, people were really sounding the alarm bells early. And I think unfortunately that governments and companies and charities and cults and religions have run with this because it's always in their interest to manipulate people. But his name was Harry Chase. He was the president of the Public Relations Society of America. And he said, the very presumptuousness of molding or affecting the human mind through the techniques we use has created a deep sense of uneasiness in our minds. I think a lot of people listening to this will relate. You know, there's a feeling now of a net tightening, of things going wrong in society, of feeling adrift from values that we held on to just a couple of decades ago. And a feeling like we're constantly bombarded by advertising and messaging, being addicted to our phones, something that people were warning about back in the 1950s when propaganda and nudging was really taking off, hasn't been addressed and it's got a lot worse. You spoke there about your own consumption habits and you include a quote in the book by communications theorist Marshall McEwen who says, quote, media is the juicy piece of meat carried by the burglar to distract the watchdog of the mind. So how has the book changed your own consumption habits? Well, my consumption habits have been changing anyway. Something I'd already noticed over the last several years is this incredible gap between what's in the media and what really concerns people. And it's obvious that the media is trying to shape the public consciousness. Now, this doesn't mean that I necessarily think there's a cabal of puppeteers. You know, a lot of people worry that if I write this kind of thing, I've fallen down some conspiracy theory trap. But I haven't at all. I think there's often a very complicated constellation of interests. So when I say the media are trying to make us think about different things, it's not necessarily with any ulterior sinister purpose in mind, except they're just an intelligentsia who think they know best what we should be thinking about. And it's often what concerns them in elite metropolitan bubbles. But there was a report by Rasmussen that found that the top five issues in the US media were climate change, the war in Ukraine, the Capitol riot investigation, COVID-19 and LGBTQ plus issues. That was in September 2022. But actually among American voters, Another study found that the top issues they were concerned about were crime, gas prices and inflation. That's almost class versus activism, isn't it, in the lens? Yeah, yeah, basically. If I watch the news now, which, you know, I almost never do, I feel like I'm watching a very blunt form of propaganda. The more of a break you can take from it, the better. The thing is that people think that propaganda is something that happens only in authoritarian countries, you know, communist regimes, autocratic countries. But there's a soft version of it that happens just as much here. And if anyone's in any doubt about that, we also talk about reports in the book, you know, collaborations between behavioural scientists and media about how to convey greater sense of urgency or fear 
among consumers. For instance, in relation to the COVID vaccines, we have an example of a scriptwriter there who was invited to conferences about how to weave COVID vaccines into drama and fiction. And also climate change is a collaboration between Sky, the broadcaster, and what's colloquially called the UK Nudge Unit, the Behavioural Insights Team, about how to make people more worried about the behaviour change that's needed towards net zero goals. So this kind of thing does go on behind the scenes, which is why you can often detect it at some level across the gamut of programming, not just news, but also dramas, documentaries, advertising, children's programming. I've got a couple of questions before we reflect. And one thing I want to move on to is the way that you wrote about in the book about terrorist attacks and something which I didn't know that happened is that outpourings of emotion after terrorist attacks aren't spontaneous but they're pre-planned so on the one hand is this a sensible way for people to release their emotions and to grieve or because of the way that it's planned is it almost unethical I don't really know Mm, very thorny and you're going to find people on both sides of that Mm. so when I interviewed advisors close to government, behavioural scientists for a state of fear. I interviewed somebody who had penned some of these plans that's put into place after disasters, terrorist attacks. I also interviewed somebody who worked for an agency that carries out some of this work online. And I think people would be amazed if they knew what happens. And you can sense good reasons for it. A lot of these terrorist attacks are often perpetrated by Muslims. And the government's very nervous about this creating Islamophobic responses and riots. The government's terrified of riots, obviously. And so what they try to do, in essence, is deflect some of the negative emotion that would result after a terrorist attack. The problem is, of course, it does intrude upon the grief and natural response of the victims' families and the local area, and it often masks the true facts. I mean, the most recent examples, you know that attack in Nottingham and young people were killed? Mm. Do you know how quickly the Nottingham Town Hall had a banner up? I think it said something like, Nottingham wins or love wins or something. Just guess how quickly that banner was up after the Uh... deaths. I want to say a week. Two hours. Wow. That's how quickly pre-canned responses happen. Now, how soon did the vigil happen? Let's say a day. It was two days. Mm. Now, the bereaved will, in some senses, be like deer in headlamps. If something terrible's happened, they've lost their children. And I do think it is unethical that they are brought out to speak at vigils so early in the grieving process. I think there's a way in which people's true responses and emotions are hijacked. Now, the reason that the government advisor who penned these plans talked to me for a state of fear was because they had become sickened by it. The Manchester Arena bombing, it was the same thing, you know, the I Heart Manchester and the flowers, you know, it just happened so quickly that people don't have time to catch their breath. There may be a moment where it's okay to howl at the sky and say, I'm in grief and enraged. So I think it's unethical to, in one sense, hijack the people who are involved locally. But I also think there's a danger in continuing to push down the complicated and concerning social causes that go behind terrorist attacks, whether they're to do with religion, culture, mental health, because the problem isn't going away. It's just being hidden. So after the London Bridge attack, 
basically, you know, a group of men in a van turn up and put flowers down and write hashtags on walls. This is not all natural. And it sounds like conspiratorial thinking, but I'm afraid there's quite a few interviews, including the ones I conducted myself, where people's idea verified, and I'm extremely confident of what they tell me, that show that these pre-canned responses happen. Before we reflect, there's one other thing I want to pick out from the book, which I think will help my listeners. It's something you call emotional landmines. So what are they and how can my listeners find their emotional landmines? Wow. Okay, straight to the big one. This is the work of a lifetime. Okay, let's try and tackle it now. So the way the book is structured, each chapter tries to convey a psychological principle that will make you resistant to manipulation. The very first one, I just want to give people a sense of the journey because you've gone right to the end of the book there. The very first I'm conscious one of time. <laughs> is to realise your brain is a battleground. That's the first thing. Understand that people are trying to manipulate you because they want to sell you stuff. They want to make you a good citizen. They want more of your time. They want you on their social media platform longer. They're trying to show you advertising. So first of all, understand that. Understand it's happening because forewarned is forearmed. There are psychological studies that show... Even if you know you're going to be manipulated, that makes you more resistant. Then, of course, there's other things you could do. You know, you can walk out the room when the ads are on. You could pick up your phone instead of watch the TV ads. Oh, no, not the phone. But there are lots of techniques you could put into place once you understand that. Then they go through stand your ground, get immunity, don't overthink it, be aware of your sensations, practice social media distancing, turn off your TV, get it in writing, watch out for the blip, be sceptical of Big Brother consider your options learn the language of symbols be the first to speak up don't be a slave to sex that's a thorny subject choose your illusion stop haunting yourself and stand for something or fall for anything you've gone straight to stop haunting yourself which is in a way i think the most difficult chapter of the book you see with propaganda or advertising the message is half of the problem but the other half of the problem is you because it plays upon your desires, fears and foibles. I can give you an example of when I was scammed. I realised in the course of writing this book I'd been scammed many times and actually I realised I'd been in quite a coercive relationship at one point and I hadn't known until I wrote the book. It's amazing how many pennies dropped for me. When I read all these techniques I thought oh my goodness I was suckered in then and Oh, I see how I fall for all this drip pricing and something I buy ends up costing more than I thought. And, oh, that boyfriend was a bad one. Lots of pennies dropped. But a really kind of almost innocent one was there was this social media scam. Woolworths, supposedly, purportedly, set up a Twitter account and said it was relaunching on the high street. I saw that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you yeah. remember? Yeah, I okay. do remember that. Yeah. I am we, one all of got, the we all got excited for about three minutes, didn't we? Did you, <laughs> did you get excited too? I was sceptical, but I was, I did because I loved Woolworths so much. I was like, oh, could it be true? But I was sceptical at the time. So I kind of like half believed it in a way. Well, you did better than me because I totally <laughs> believed it. And what that was doing, Freddie was playing to hope. So there are two themes that are exploited mercilessly in propaganda. This particular Twitter scam I'm talking about wasn't propaganda, but it's good to understand it's used in propaganda. One is fear. And the other is hope. Think and that about was nostalgic the, hope, wasn't it? Woolworths. Nostalgic, nostalgic yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you think about the Obama campaign, that was just his face with the word hope underneath it. It's pretty blunt propaganda. They're in supposedly the freest, most democratic Western country there is. That's how it works. So this was after COVID and, and lockdowns had started. And there were, of course, lots of reports at the time about high street shops shutting. High street shops had shut, they had closed, people were going out of business. 
Woolworths was this magical high street store that some of your listeners might be too young to remember, but it's where I used to buy sweets after school. You know, there's massive everything, Halloween costumes, games, pick a mix, everything. Yeah, yeah. It's the home of my, my, my first makeup purchase, my first vinyl purchase. No CDs. It's vinyl yeah, anymore, yeah. but you know, oh, CDs for you. Bless you. Mm. You're just that bit younger than me. So I bought a Shaken Stevens record. It was my first single I ever bought. And so it speaks to happiness, first experiences, fun. It was a fun shop. I didn't sell any rubbish or cleaning stuff. Everything in there was fun. Makeup, sweets, music, Halloween, celebration, Christmas decorations. When this tweet said it was reopening, I just thought, wow, this is the best thing ever. And I retweeted it with a really happy message. I was telling people. Several hours later, people are tweeting, ha, I can't believe the suckers that fell for that. And that was me. I was one of those suckers. So I fell for the hope. That's because we were in a dark time and we needed hope. But it can be a lot more specific. You know, it could be that you have body image anxiety and, you know, Facebook will pick up on this and give you lots of body shape wear ads or cosmetic surgery ads or diet ads or perhaps you're a man and Facebook knows you don't have a girlfriend and you get lots of web chat ads or Ukrainian prostitute emails coming into your, into your email inbox. You know, So whatever your particular issues are, they can be exploited against you. So it is the work of the lifetime, but you can start now. What are your landmines? What are your fears? Is it that you're worried about your children's financial future? Is it that you think you're fat? Is it that you feel like a failure in your career? Whatever it is, once you start tackling it, you'll be less susceptible to propaganda. Now, there's a few things you can do. You could go hardcore. You could get a therapist. You can be more open, emotionally open, talk to your friends about things. There's something called self-distancing, which I love. I can't remember the name of the theorist who talks about it. But it could be that you talk to yourself or you write a diary like it's the third person. You know, describe yourself in the third person. You get some distance from yourself. You understand yourself better. You could meditate, mindful meditation. If you just do 15 minutes a day to reduce your susceptibility to your own cognitive biases. But you need to try to understand yourself better and stop haunting yourself. I'm very conscious of time. So I'm going to ask my final question in two parts as we reflect. The first one is what has been your proudest achievement on this journey? And the second one is what has this journey and perhaps writing the book taught you about yourself? Right. Okay. My proudest achievement. I think that, okay, there's two answers. One is honest, but less comfortable to tell you, but this is a mental health podcast. So we'll be honest. Yeah. So the first answer is that when people write to me and say that my books have made a difference, it makes me so happy. Probably the most extreme example of that was recently I was talking at an event and a young woman came up to me and said that she had had a breakdown. She hadn't been able to get out of bed for weeks during COVID. She was terrified of COVID and she was then terrified about the threat of mandated vaccines. And she read A State of Fear, How the UK Government Weaponised Fear During the COVID-19 Pandemic, my book before. And she said it basically saved her life. It put an end to the suicide ideation. It was the beginning of recovery. Something like that makes me feel really good about the work that I've put in because I don't think writing a book is easy. I mean, I really like researching books and interviewing people and I like writing, but there's also a lot of fear and, mm. you know, fear of failure, fear of not being good enough, of not having anything to say that anybody would actually want to read. And then even after a book comes out, there's the feeling that I could just not exist and it wouldn't make a bloody bit of difference in the world. 
what's the point of me? What's the point of anything I do? You know, I think this kind of existential crisis is very common to writers because you invest so much of yourself intellectually, psychologically and emotionally in a book. Well, I think you do if you do it properly. So feeling like I've helped people. But then there's another thing. And I think it's I think it's just outright praise. I think that makes me feel really proud of what I've achieved when people tell me it's good. That kind of feeling of applause, because if you create something, you could create it after all and leave it in a drawer in a corner of the garage. If you share it with people, it's because at some level you want validation and applause and that feeds into a sense of pride I suppose maybe it's not good pride if you need other people's validation to prop up your self-image but there's that what have I learned from it I think that I learned so much that after free your mind was written I actually found myself in quite a hyper vigilant and anxious state because, you know, I've done the research, so you don't have to. You can read the book and take a lot from it. And there are people that tell me that this book changed them very quickly after reading it, that they changed their media consumption habits, or they thought about language differently, they thought differently about themselves. But actually going through primary texts and, and interviewing people and doing the research was quite intense. And there's a way in which it's made me feel negative and fatalistic about humanity as well as see the positives. And I haven't actually quite made peace with that yet. I don't really know how I fit into the world and what I think about people because the human brain is incredible. I think human beings are incredible. There's a lot of misanthropy in the world right now. And I feel very resistant to that. You know, we get it in the climate change movement or a lot of postmodern thinking about oppressor versus oppressed identity politics. There's a lot of self-hatred at the heart mm. of these movements. And I resist that. And yet at the same time, sometimes I feel quite bleak about human beings because we are quite easily manipulated. Our tendencies, the biases that we, you know, we haven't even talked about this, but it runs through the book, you know, understanding your biases. We have tendencies to be frightened of scarcity. We have a tendency to conform. We have a tendency to follow authority. We want to be like the crowd. We want to fit in. We want to be liked by people that we know. And they're used against us. And so while they've served important evolutionary purposes, they're weaknesses. But then the other side of that is if people can be made to conform, they can do terrible things and great evil happens in the world. And so there's a way in which I've been left on one hand hopeful, but on the other hand, very bleak. And I haven't spiritually and intellectually made peace with where this book has left me. I am way more aware of manipulation. I mean... I am so aware of language, advertising. Watching TV is just like watching a propaganda box now. I think I'm a lot less easily manipulated. But straight after the book, I went too hypervigilant. I think I was too observant about how my fiancé and I talked to each other. I couldn't be on the phone on hold without rolling my eyes at the recorded messages that were trying to get me to do one thing or nudge me to do another. It's also the big stuff. You know, when you're thinking about the brain, human psychology and how to make the most, you know, the deepest change at the heart of ourselves and how we think. It leaves you with a bit of a feeling of where to go next. What do I do next that's really meaningful? I think my next book is actually going to be about death and it's something I've wanted to do and write about since 2020. And then, of course, then I'll have gone from breasts to brains to bones. <laughs> then well, breast, breast to death. 
<laughs> then there won't be there won't be anywhere else left to go. So I think that's the best I can answer it for how it's left me. It's also left me feeling a bit tired, to be honest. It's a lot of work writing a book. I, oh, also, I gained a lot more humility from writing it in ways that I hadn't expected. So this is the interesting thing about a book. It performs a kind of an alchemy that you can't predict. So if you write a book because you yourself have a need for catharsis and you're trying to do deep work, it changes you in ways that you can't predict. But sometimes it's like this little bit of magic that comes in from the outside world when you're writing a book that you can't predict. So one example of that would be that... Um, there was research that Patrick and I did that we couldn't then include in the book. So we signed up with a couple of very controversial organisations and did courses. And we wanted to write about that. And initially, when we chose this publisher, they were very adamant we wouldn't be neutered in anything we did. And in the end, the legal department were a little cautious about these chapters. And they went through two sets of barristers. But still, the publishers made us take out two chapters and that was quite painful for us because we found ourselves almost backed into a corner it's like part of the book was taken hostage and it's ironic because we wrote about hostage takers we interviewed hostage negotiators for the book but if a hostage negotiator doesn't negotiate with you you can't negotiate the publisher wouldn't meet us or talk to us in enough time for us to kind of work on getting these chapters back in so we found ourselves in a sense manipulated and unable to do anything about it the while irony. writing a book about manipulation. So there are a lot of ways it taught me humility that I hadn't been expecting. We've talked all about your book and your professional and media journey, Laura. Let's go deeper and talk about your own mental health journey. So I ask all my special guests this question to take me back to early life, teenagers, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences, if any? Who's the Laura we meet here? Oh my goodness. I wasn't prepared to talk about my mental health journey from being a child. Okay. So my parents split up when I was nine. I think that's a real chapter change when I was a child. So life before that was lovely and normal. Then things became more difficult. I remember my parents told me on Boxing Day they were going to split up and Christmas has never been the same since. I still don't like Christmas. You have these experiences that do change you forever maybe they shouldn't maybe I should work on Christmas but I think after that was this kind of dividing point you know I sort of be handed over on Christmas Eve night between parents do Christmas Eve with my dad Christmas Day with my mom so I've never really liked Christmas it's always felt a bit stressful then I think after that I never really felt I never felt quite safe anymore there was a feeling of financial instability I know there are teenagers who take money out of their parents purse and I remember doing babysitting so I could put money into my mom's purse I think I had some insecurity and anxiety growing up every girl pretty much every girl listening will remember what it feels like to become a teenager when your body changes and you have body image anxieties I had that one with bells it's only about 10 years ago I found a diary I wrote as a teenager and every single day I'd weigh myself oh and list out everything I'd eaten that I shouldn't have eaten. And I threw that diary away. I thought, oh, goodness, I don't want a memory of that. It's very relatable, but, you know, honest. But just being obsessed with being fat as a teenager. Then went to university, started work. I met my husband early. We were together for 20 years and we split up. Divorce is probably one of the hardest things I've been through. 
I never wanted to get divorced and I never wanted my children to be the children of divorced parents. But it's funny how these things that we seek to avoid seek us out because somehow deep down subconsciously, I think we've planted the seeds of recreating the experience, maybe to produce a kind of catharsis. I'm not sure because my children were eight and 10 when I got divorced and I was nine when my parents did. It's almost like exactly the same thing that slapped me around the face, slapped them around the face. And I've changed my career a few times. So I, as you know, I've described at the beginning, I worked in publishing and then became a photographer and then a writer. So I feel like there's been quite a lot of change that's internally driven regarding mm. what I do. And what I do is very connected to my identity. What I do is integral to me. I don't just do a job. Sometimes I wish I did. I think life would be easier. But the older you get, the more you accept who you are. So I've accepted that I'm somebody who's creative and I'm a communicator and there's a degree to which my life is a little bit chaotic as a result. And I think in recent years, I've been making quite a lot of peace with that. Before we move on to a subject which I haven't covered yet on the podcast, Laura, one thing that did make your home life difficult as well was that your father struggled with addiction. How did that impact your mental health at the time? It didn't affect my mental health that I was aware of at the time. Yes, yeah, so I wrote about this in Bare Reality, my first book, which was about breasts. A lot of that book was a response to the men in my life. My dad had a sex addiction, so I was aware of quite a lot of pornography around when I was young, and he went through a lot of girlfriends. There were some very complicated things to deal with as a young adult. Things that I wouldn't talk about because they're not just my story. They're things of I haven't course. say told my yeah. children, that kind of mm. thing. So I'm always very careful about that. But I obviously wanted to reclaim being a woman in my own skin. It sounds a bit cheesy saying that, but that's very much what bare reality was about. I was photographing mm -hmm. women's breasts and interviewing them about being a woman because I wanted to claim that territory, take it back. It was very much a response to the pernicious effects of pornography and sex addiction and instability in romantic lives. I mean, my mum's been married five times, so there's been a lot of instability in my life in that respect. So those books about the body were absolutely a response to my parents and growing up with my dad. There's a lot I had to make peace with with my dad after he died. It's interesting to make peace with somebody when they're gone, but there were things that we found out about him after we died that were very, very difficult to come to terms with. And I now recognise so much that my dad did that was very loving and very dutiful and responsible as a father, but at the same time, there were difficult messages as a girl growing up with a dad like that. Something which I haven't discussed on this podcast before, Laura, is the menopause. And you were keen to talk about the mental health impact of it as you've entered this stage of your life. So just tell me first how it's affected you and why, despite all the positive work that's been done for women in the mental health conversation, this part still feels like a taboo and a stigma that hasn't yet been broken down. Oh, bless you. A young man giving an older woman space to talk about perimenopause. <laughs> Okay, I tell you what, in all honesty, I'm surprised that more women don't kill themselves at this stage of life. Do you mm. know the age bracket where w women are most likely to take their lives is 45 to 54. Perimenopause is an absolute shocker. I mean, there are women who experience it in terms of hot flushes and physical symptoms, but so many experience psychological and emotional problems 
they're just not aired that much publicly. And I think the reason for that is an age-old one that's never going to go, look, older women are just not as interesting as younger women. Who wants to talk about women's psychological issues when they're older and they're going past their prime? And another thing that a lot of women struggle with at this age, I haven't really experienced it and I don't care about it, but it's a kind of an invisibility, you know, as women become less, maybe less fertile looking, less beautiful, they're losing their looks as they get older. What's going on inside is a great deal less interest to the world. So I think that that's why you get women who hit this stage of life and they start talking about it. You'll get to think of lots of female celebrities like Davina McCall who do documentaries or books about the menopause. But it's really only women my age who are sitting up and taking notice. Nobody younger is, is going to be that interested. I'm, I'm trying. Why, I'm trying, pal. <laughs> bless you. Why should they be? What it can do is make you feel like you have a very foggy head. It's harder to think clearly. And women can experience crashing lows crisis of confidence. It's like PMT or postnatal depression, but on steroids. Mm. I think it's the worst phase of mental health of my life being in perimenopause. So I tried HRT, which is quite helpful, but I'm taking myself off it now. It's a very debilitating and strange phase of life for women. I don't think there's anything more to say about it than that. God, it, we can't finish. You can't finish talking to a middle-aged woman talking about how bad perimenopause is. We've got to finish on a different note, Freddie. I'll have some positive reflection questions in a second, but I do <laughs> want to give you space to talk about this because you said these hormones, whether you take it as HRT or, or just internal to you, thins the veil. Can you just tell me what you meant by that? Yeah, I think so. What it does is it doesn't invent problems out of nowhere. So only a woman who's experienced these hormonal problems is going to know what I'm talking about. The men are probably going to be mystified but if you have premenstrual tension or serious perimenopausal symptoms, you don't create a problem that doesn't exist. What happens is you see it clearly, you see it sharply, and you may well be exaggerating it out of all proportion. But if there's a crack, it becomes a crevice. So it thins a veil in a way. It makes you less able to ignore issues and it makes you less tolerant about them. So there is something about this stage of life which is quite powerful. I am barely able to deal with any bullshit anymore. That's my own or other people's. I've become a lot more straight talking. And I am much less, much less worried about what people will think. Life is short. Mm. I'm going to be 51 next week. If I live till I'm 80, let's say, I'm five-eighths of the way through my life. There's no time to hang about and go along with things you don't believe in and be frightened of what people think. And there's something about this stage of life, which is a bit like going through a ring of fire. You kind of like, bring it on. A friend of mine was talking about something that happened to her recently. She was in a shoe shop with her niece and this man walked in. I mean, maybe he would identify as a trans woman. He was wearing a mini skirt, but he flashed at the niece, revealed his naked penis in a shoe shop. And she said something in her snapped and she threw him against a wall by the neck and told the shoe shop manager to call the police. This is not something that young women do. No, this is something that women do when they've hit the perimenopause. It's kind of like a warrior energy. Mm, I get that sense. As a final question before we reflect very quickly, how do we change the conversation, improve it, shall I say? And also, how can we help the male listeners who might want to support a partner or a friend or a colleague, or someone else in their life who's a woman who's going through the menopause? Because I guess from a biological perspective, it's a sign that you are no longer able to have children, which is, I guess is a grief as well as as much as anything. But it's also a very personal issue for women. So how can we help the male listeners as well support those people and women? 
Yeah, I guess um, first talk a bit about listening to the women in your life. But I think some women find it difficult to also be honest about the problems. I mean, I am brutally honest with myself as well as other people. On, on a kind of an honesty spectrum, I'm at a very extreme end of it. And that's to do with a lot of work I've done myself, my own creative work. So first of all, you need the woman in your life, to be honest. If, if a woman's grieving about the fact that she's less attractive and men don't look at her, but it's just made her spiky and bitter, if she's not being honest about it, you're not really going to be able to help her. You need to be sympathetic to the symptoms that women experience. It can also take women by surprise. I tell you what, if, you, mm. if you're with a woman in her 40s and she's starting to be shouty, moody, she may not know that she's in the perimenopause. It can go on for about a decade. It goes on a long time and it could creep up on you. So it's not just the obvious things like hot flushes. It's psychological and emotional situations that you might not immediately identify with that. And as a final question, I'll wrap these into two parts as well. What has this mental health journey taught you about yourself? And if you could go back and talk to the Laura who was maybe struggling with her parents' divorce, being told about it at Christmas and Boxing Day, the Laura who was thinking about whether to write a state of fear or free your mind, or the Laura who was experiencing those perimenopausal symptoms for the first time, what would you say to her knowing what you do now? I think about this kind of thing all the time. It's one reason I'm working on quite a long-range project about death. I think to myself all the time, when I'm on my deathbed, what will I wish I could have said to myself earlier? And for me, it's nearly always about letting go of fear. Don't be frightened of who you are, of making mistakes, and be present in the moment. I think that's very difficult to truly be present. By the time you die, any money worries you've had will be behind you. Any disputes with a neighbour or a friend will be behind you. It's the small stuff. It really doesn't matter. So I try to bring that into my life now as much as I can. Almost anything I wish I could do differently would be about letting go of anxiety that I didn't need to carry because that phase will be over. Everything comes to an end. And it would be about being present. I wish I could be more present again when my babies were little and enjoy it more, knowing how soon the tiredness would pass. I wish I could have not worried about money when I was, say, a teenager, knowing that I wasn't always going to be a teenager. I was going to start earning money for myself or whatever. Right now, I'd probably, okay, Laura on her deathbed would say to Laura right now, don't worry about your current existential crisis with your career. You'll figure it out this year. You'll work out what you're doing next. It will all happen. I think the important things are to be honest with yourself and others, to behave with integrity. If there is a life after death, and I believe there is, it is your good deeds you take with you and not the material possessions you accumulate. So it's all about trying to be a good person as much as you can and being present with the ones you love. It's all about love. What a brilliant note to end it on. Laura, thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast and talking to me. Thank you so much for having me. It's been one of the most interesting podcasts I've ever done. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In pod. A big thank you to Laura for being my special guest and for letting me check in with her. I'll put links to where you can follow Laura on social media and buy a copy of Free Your Mind in the show notes. As always, thank you to all the venters who've tuned into this episode. Remember, I'll sign us off by saying if you like what you've heard, please give it a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, write us a review and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you like what we're doing here at Vent, please consider supporting us by going to 
www.patreon.com slash ventshelpuk or you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe or go to our link tree that's linktr.ee slash ventshelpuk all one word to find out more about all the other ways you can financially support Vent and the podcast. We hope to check in with you again very soon and remember guys it is always okay to vent. Vent.